We are about to embark together on a journey, walking through this letter that Paul wrote to the churches in Galatia, line by line, verse by verse. And we're praying that God would allow the truths in this book to explode in our lives, to explode in our church, that we might be gripped in a greater way by the gospel, so we might go forth in a greater way with the gospel. That's what Galatians is all about. So keeping that in mind, turn with me to Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1, we'll begin reading in verse 1. Galatians chapter 1, verse 1, New Testament book. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, if that helps you to, to locate it. Galatians chapter 1, verse 1. I'm going to ask you this morning if you are physically able to please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word, which is truth with no mixture of error. Galatians 1, verse 1. This letter begins, Paul, an apostle not from men, nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you today in Jesus' name, and we are grateful, Lord, for another opportunity to gather as a faith family to fix our eyes upon Jesus, who is the author and the finisher of our faith, to celebrate who Christ is and what Christ has done, that we might be saved and might be sanctified and have the hope of glory in our lives. And I pray, Lord, that as we study your word, you would accompany the preaching of your word by the power of your spirit, that our eyes might be opened, that we would see the truths of Scripture, that we would be changed by the truths of Scripture. Lord, we, we pray for understanding, but we pray for understanding that would lead to transformation. So, Father, would you grant that by the power of the Spirit of God? Draw near to us in these moments. We need you. We love you. We praise you. We celebrate today the cross and the empty tomb. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. I'm not going to spend a lot of time establishing the context of this passage because really the entire sermon is establishing the context for uh, this letter. Uh, but notice uh, that this is a letter. The ESV calls it the letter of Paul to the Galatians. Uh, your translation may say the epistle of Paul to the Galatians. Uh, epistle is basically just an older English form of the word letter. An epistle is not the wife of an apostle, if you're wondering. Uh, I've, people have made that mistake before. Uh, an epistle is a letter. and This is a letter that Paul wrote uh, to a group of uh, churches. Now, letters in the day and time in which this was written, the first century would typically begin with an identification of the sender and the recipients. Also included in the opening of a letter would be a word of greeting, and Paul consistently follows that pattern in his letters. We see it here in 
Galatians. Now, there's a difference between this letter and other letters he wrote. We'll talk about that in a few moments. But notice there, there is a greeting. Uh, he identifies himself as the sender of the letter. Uh, Paul, first word of this uh, book. I, I toyed around the idea of preaching a sermon on just the first word, but we're going to go a little bit further this morning. Uh, but then he identifies who he's writing to, uh, the churches of uh, Galatia. And, and then he gives a word of greeting, starting in verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to focus on the first two verses of this letter. I want to focus on uh, the identification of the sender. And I want to focus on the recipients. Because as we focus on those two things, we see some, some things emerge about uh, Paul, that help us to understand the rest of the letter. So, at the beginning of this letter, I want you to see three things about Paul with me. Number one, at the beginning of this letter, we see Paul's authority. We see Paul's authority. Verse one, Paul, an apostle, he writes, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Now, we see Paul's authority to write what he's writing here, uh, and we'll talk about the content in a few moments. We see his authority to write in his, what he's writing in three different ways. First of all, we see Paul's authority in his changed life. Now, he's about to write some pretty stern truths to the churches in Galatia, and it's possible that some of the folks receiving this letter would say, who do you think you are? Well, this greeting helps us to understand who Paul was. And he begins by identifying himself as Paul. Now, you know, don't you, that that was not always his name. His name was changed from Saul to Paul. Why was his name changed? It seems that his name was changed because of the major transformation that happened in his life. Before he met Jesus... Paul was a very religious man, and hey, come in real close. Did you know you can be religious and lost? Do you know that? Paul proves that. He was a very religious man. Paul knew more scripture than any one of us in this room knew by heart. He had memorized many of the Old Testament scriptures. He was a giver of alms. He would probably fast about twice a week. He was a religious leader intimately acquainted with the, the leaders called the, the Pharisees. In fact, he was a Pharisee himself. He had a, a spotless Jewish pedigree. Over in Philippians 3, he shares his pedigree. I, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews, the tribe of Benjamin. I was a, a Pharisee, and I was so dedicated to Judaism. When this new sect popped up called Christianity, these followers of Christ, I was opposed to it because it threatened our beliefs that threatened our ways of life. And so Paul says, I even persecuted the church. He was a very religious man, and he was bent on stopping the advance of the gospel. One day, Saul was journeying to Damascus, and he had a letter from the religious leaders in Jerusalem. They gave him authority to persecute Christians, Jews that had become followers of Christ. And he was even going to drag them out of their homes and throw them into prison. Well, on his way to Damascus, he was encountered by a bright light. You can read about this over in Acts chapter 9. 
It was uh, a meeting with the Lord Jesus Christ himself, the risen Lord Jesus. And, and he's overcome with that experience, that, that, that encounter with Christ. And he falls down and says, who are you, Lord? He knew whoever this was. He was Lord. And he, who are you, Lord? And Jesus identifies himself. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And I believe in those moments Paul's life was changed he was converted became a follower of christ and then he was baptized and and he began instantly to advance the gospel he was trying to stop so there's no uh, no wonder that his name changes because he was not saul anymore he was a brand new man and his new name paul signified his new nature it reminds me of 2 Corinthians 5.17 that says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And I believe that Paul's life was so radically different that this name change needed to happen to differentiate between the old man and the new man. And so we see this in his authority is in his changed life. This is not Saul writing to the churches in Galatia. He's not, he's not trying to stop the gospel. He's trying to advance the gospel. He is, he's for the church, not against the church. He's not Saul. He's Paul. Paul is not just talking theory or theology in this letter. He had been personally and radically changed by the gospel. We had a first-hand encounter with the good news that Jesus saves. And that gave him authority. He knew that of which he spoke. He's talking about the gospel. He'd been changed by the gospel. Do you know you can talk about the gospel and, and, and never have, have been changed by the gospel? Do you know you can talk religion and not have a relationship with Christ? There are scholars in universities and even seminaries that spend all of their time studying the Bible and they are headed for hell because they don't know the author of the Bible? But Paul is not talking theory, is he? He's not speaking from an ivory tower. He had personally been changed. So there's authority in that. He was not just talking the talk. He had met Christ. So we see his authority in his changed life. Secondly, we see Paul's authority in his commission. Look what it says in verse 1. Paul, an apostle. An apostle. Now... As Paul's letters circulated among the churches and enemies of Paul and his message began to bubble up, certainly there were probably some saying, don't listen to this Paul guy. Paul didn't have any authority. He wasn't one of the original 12 apostles that we see over in Acts chapter 1 on the day of Pentecost. He's not one of the original uh, 12. He's not from the Jerusalem church. He doesn't have any authority. Why would you listen to him? They might even say, you know what? This Paul guy, he wasn't a direct witness to the re re uh, resurrected Christ the way the other apostles were. He didn't have apostolic authority. Don't listen to him. To which Paul says, not so fast. I'm not commissioned by the Jerusalem church. I wasn't sent out by them. I'm not one of the original 12 in Acts chapter 1 and, and Acts chapter 2, but I want you to know I have met the risen Lord Jesus personally, a direct encounter with him on the road to Damascus. In fact, he says in 
1 Corinthians 9, 1. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? Paul is claiming here apostolic authority, specially commissioned by personal encounter with Jesus, where he saw him. Now, I've been saved. I've been changed by Jesus. I've never seen him with my physical eyes. Never. One day my faith will become sight and I will see him. But I still love him. First Peter says, though we do not see him, we love him. Though we do not see him now, we, we rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. I mean, he's real, but I've never seen him with my physical eyes. Paul did. Paul had a direct encounter with the risen Lord Jesus and received a special apostolic commission. He was just as much an apostle as Peter was, or John or James were. He had apostolic authority because of his encounter and commission with Christ on the road to Damascus. Now, apostles had authority, special authority, in the first century. This original group of apostles, the the original twelve, and Paul... They had authority because God used them to give us the New Testament. God breathed through these apostles, so they were writing down the words of Scripture as God breathed through them exactly what he wanted them to write down. And when the early church began to identify which letters circulating throughout the churches had authority, they gave them the test of apostolicity. Apostolicity. Were these written by an apostle or a close associate of an apostle? That became one of the tests of the canon of Scripture. Because the apostles had direct authority to write down the words of God as he breathed through them. Truth with no mixture of error. So Paul had that apostolic authority. That's why so many books in the New Testament come from him. He was an apostle. He had authority. So if anyone tried to question... His authority, he could just say, hey, listen, Jesus directly commissioned me on the road to Damascus. They couldn't play this game. Don't listen to Paul. He's not an apostle. He was just as much an apostle as Peter, James, and John. Right? Got that? So he says here, Paul, an apostle. And it's interesting that he mentions there, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. He mentions the resurrection there because he had experienced personally the resurrected Lord Jesus. So we see here Paul's authority in his changed life. We see Paul's authority in his commission. But third, we see Paul's authority in his companions. Look what it says there in verse 2. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through men. In other words, the source of my authority is not men. They're not the agency of my authority. It's not through man but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me. So Paul's saying, I'm writing to you and you need to know this is coming from a group of us. This is coming from the church. This is not some lone ranger religious teacher. And by the way, there were a lot of those in the first century. Folks that invented their own message and they'd ride into town and they'd gather people in the town square and say, Listen to my new message. They would lead people astray. Paul's saying this is not some random religious musings of some man that considers himself a sage. I'm writing on the authority of the faith 
that's been delivered to the saints. This is me writing with all the brothers. Writing with the authority of the New Testament church. That's, that's what he's saying. He's saying there that the church is built upon a foundation of truth and doctrine. And he's saying what I'm writing to you is in line with that foundation. This is not some radical new message that no one's ever heard before. This is a message that the church of Jesus Christ has been built upon. So he wants to say, he wants him to know, hey, it's not just Paul writing. I'm writing with my brothers, with my companions. I like what uh, is written by New Testament scholar Timothy George. He writes, it is significant that Paul did not write as a lone ranger Christian. However unique his commission and solitary status. He deliberately, listen, he deliberately associated himself with fellow believers who shared with him a burden for the gospel as well as for the Galatians. So here's what you need to understand by that. If anyone ever shows up in your life and says, I've got a new message. This is different than that church you go to. It's, it's a new message. You better run. The Bible says in Jude 1, 4, there is a faith, a body of belief, doctrinal realities that have been delivered to the saints. Listen, once for all. They're not subject to change or adjustment. God has given us the truth of the gospel, the truth of his word, once for all. You either build your life upon it or you reject it. But there is no new message out there that is truth. There's a new message. It's not truth. It's, it's falsehood. Run. Run. So Paul is establishing this very beginning of the letter, his authority to speak into their lives. His changed life, his commission as an apostle, and his companions. He's writing with the church, with the brothers in Christ. And as I was studying this, it reminded me of those commercials that came out years ago. Some of you won't even know what I'm talking about. And by the way, when I start saying things like that, it, I'm feeling it get older. I'm, I feel like I'm getting older when I say, say things like that. But, uh, but you remember the E.F. Hutton commercials, right? When E.F. Hutton talks, what happens? Everybody listens, right? They, I don't even remember what those were about. I just remember the name E.F. Hutton. Some kind of financial advisor. I don't know what it was. So you might know what E.F. Hutton. We'll talk later. But, it, but, but the commercial said, when E.F. Hutton talks, everybody listens. At the very beginning of this letter, Paul, as he establishes authority, is saying, you better listen. I've got some, some important things to say. So we see Paul's authority to write this letter. Secondly, we see Paul's affection he doesn't just come to them with authority. He comes to them with love. Look what it says in verse 2. He identifies himself, Paul an apostle. Then he says, and all the brothers who are with me, to, who's he writing to? The recipients, to the churches, plural, the churches of Galatia. Now, there, uh, there's a big scholarly discussion here about the churches in Galatia. Who exactly he's referring to. And really the discussion doesn't change anything in terms of the way this letter is to be understood. But basically it boils down to, was Paul writing to North Galatia 
or to South Galatia. That's the, that's the argument, and there's, a lot of, there's been a lot of ink spilled over this issue. I mean, I read a lot of these past weeks preparing for this uh, sermon series. I determined I'm just not going to get into it with you that, because it's just, it, just doesn't, it just doesn't matter much. Uh, there's a lot you could read about it. Basically, what it boils down to is, was he writing to the Galatian people group, the ethnic Galatian people, or was he writing to uh, churches that were found in the Roman province called Galatia? That, that's the issue. If it was the Galatian people group, it's North Galatia. It changes the timeline of some of the events in Galatians, which we'll talk about as we get to them. If he's writing to the, the province of Galatia, it was the South Galatian area, uh, South Galatia. And again, that affects the timeline of some of these events. And so as you kind of factor that in with the book of Acts, it kind of helps you to understand maybe how things unfolded in Paul's itinerary as a believer and as an apostle. But again, it really doesn't change how this letter is to be understood. I believe he's writing to the Roman province of Galatia because he used Roman province names in other letters. And we know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that he went into the Roman province of Galatia and preached the gospel and started churches. Uh, over in Acts chapter uh, 14. So we know that happened. The North Galatian theory says, well, it might have happened. He might have gone up there at some point. They try to figure out a place that he went, but it's an argument from silence. We know that he went into the Romans province of Galatia and started churches. I believe when he says to the churches of Galatia, he's speaking to churches in the Roman province, South Galatia, if you will. Now, here's what's interesting. As Paul begins this letter, he doesn't fill the, the beginning with a bunch of niceties. In other letters, he spends some time complimenting the church and thanking God for them. Here, he identifies himself. He identifies who he's writing to. He pronounces a blessing on them, but he gets directly into the subject matter. You know why? He's angry. He's angry. He's angry because... Folks had risen up in the churches that were trying to lead Christians astray from the true gospel. And it made him mad. In fact, look what he says in verse 6. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. He is mad. No niceties. He gets right into it. But you need to understand this. He's angry but he's angry because he cares so much about them. That's why he's angry. Over in chapter 4, Paul softens his tone a bit and begins to speak of his tender feelings for the Christians in the churches of Galatia. As we look at Paul's history in Galatia, we learn that he, that he, he cared greatly for these churches. And again, you read about this over in Acts 13 and Acts chapter 14. There was, again... A Roman province named Galatia, and we know in those chapters of Acts, that's roughly southern Turkey, that Paul went through that province preaching the gospel and started churches. Antioch, Pisidia, this was his first missionary journey. Antioch, Pisidia was in Galatia. This is where Paul preached a great sermon in the local Jewish synagogue. The next Sabbath, almost the entire city gathered to hear Paul speak. This made many of the Jews mad, so they began to contradict his teaching. So Paul turned his focus to the Gentiles. Many were saved in this city, and the gospel began to spread in the region. This made the Jews angry. So the Jews stirred up persecution to Paul uh, against Paul and his companions, and they left for a city called Iconium. Iconium was in Galatia. Again, Paul preached. Many were saved, but the Jews stirred up dissension. And when they learned that the rulers of that city were about to stone them, they fled and went to Lystra. 
Lystra was in Galatia. In Lystra, God healed a man through Paul, which amazed the crowds. They began to try and worship Paul and Barnabas, thinking they were gods. Paul pointed them back to the one true God. But troublemakers from Antioch, Pisidia, and Iconium showed up. And they persuaded the city of Lystra uh, to stone Paul. Now, imagine, when it's just one little sentence in, the, in Acts, they stoned him. Can you imagine how awful that would be? In the first century, they would often bury someone up to their waist, and then they would pick up large stones and pelt them with them till they died. Or they would put them in some sort of pit, and they would stand around the edge of the pit with large stones and throw them at the person the person was dead. And they thought they killed Paul because it says they drug him out of the city and left him for dead. Can you imagine? I mean, there's some hardships for living for Jesus here in our land, but we haven't been stoned yet, have we? He's drug out and left for dead. But then Paul rose up, I believe supernaturally rose up. God healed him. And then he went to Derby. Derby was in Galatia. They preached the gospel there, and many became disciples of Jesus. Then they returned through Lystra, by the way. He went back to the place where he was stoned. How's that for courage? Went back to Lystra, uh, uh, through Lystra to Iconium, to Antioch, Pisidia. And it says they went back through those cities, strengthening and encouraging the believers along the way. They also appointed elders and leaders in the churches that had been started in those Galatian cities. Now, here's what I believe. This is South Galatian theory, if you're interested. I believe that Paul wrote this letter that we call Galatians. He wrote it after this first missionary journey, probably from his home church in Antioch of Syria. So he went through Galatia, started a lot of churches, went back to his home base of Antioch in Syria, and he wrote this letter because he cared about them. He heard some things. He wanted to address some things he heard about the doctrine in those churches. And we also know in Acts that on his second missionary journey, they went back to those cities in Galatia, the Bible says, to check on them. They want to go back and see how these churches were doing. And this was Paul's second missionary journey. In fact, in Lystra, on his second missionary journey, Paul met a young man named Timothy who became a part of his missionary team. Now, why am I telling you all that? Why am I giving you that historical background about Galatia? Here's the reason. I tell you all of that to help you see that Paul had a lot invested in Galatia. He spent a lot of time there. He went through suffering and hardship to preach the gospel and see people saved. He checked on these churches. He wrote letters to these churches. He cared about them deeply. He was angry. He was mad. We'll see this unfold in the coming weeks. But he was mad because he cared about them so very much. You see, Paul had credibility to write this kind of letter, which is a harsh letter. He had credibility to write this kind of letter because he cared. They knew Paul had suffered hardship to preach the gospel. They knew Paul had journeyed back through their cities to check on them. They knew Paul had come back on his second missionary journey. They knew Paul had written letters. They knew Paul cared. And I bet you, listen to me, they were more willing to hear him because they knew that he cared. It was authority, but it was authority driven by a heart of affection. When my father knew I was going into the ministry, before I left for seminary, he uh, made a comment to me, kind of pulled me aside one day and, and kind of got serious with me for a moment. And I'll never forget it. He said, Wade, you're going to seminary to learn you know, theology and, and learn some things to help you to be a pastor. 
He said, but remember, people don't care how much you know. What is it? Until they know how much you what? Care. And that's what's happening here. Paul is writing with impeccable credentials. He's an apostle, personally commissioned by Christ. But his letter is not just about authority. It's driven by a deep affection for the people. He cares about them. He cares about their spiritual condition. And that's why he writes this letter. So we see Paul's authority and we see Paul's affection. But third and last, we see Paul's aim. We see Paul's aim. Why exactly is Paul writing this letter? Look what it says in verse 2. I'm writing with all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Why is he writing to the churches of Galatia? Very simply put, Paul desired to rescue the churches from false teaching. That's why he's writing. That's why I quoted to you earlier verse 6 and 7. I'm astonished. That you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. He had heard that the gospel was being distorted and people were being misled. And Paul cared greatly about the, the purity of the gospel message and these churches being led astray. And so he's writing to rescue them from false teaching. And hey, by the way. False teaching is not just a first century issue. It's still everywhere today. All around us. We're being bombarded with false teaching. And listen to me. Just because somebody quotes a few Bible verses and calls themselves a Christian doesn't mean that they are a reliable Bible teacher. You've got to test everything by the word, right? Paul is writing to rescue them from false teaching. Look what it says over in chapter 3, verse 1. Again, he's angry. Look what he says. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Who's led you astray? You are being foolish. His aim is to show them this. And how is he going to rescue them? How's this book of Galatians going to help? He would rescue them by explaining to them the true gospel. And in and, 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 and summary form, that's what Galatians is. It is an extended discussion on the gospel. A, an extended explanation of what the gospel is. And its implications for our lives. So that's what this book is. Don't be led astray by false gospels. Here's the real deal. You know that treasury agents, when they're trained to spot counterfeit money, they don't just study counterfeit money. They study the real thing, real money, so that when they see a counterfeit, they know it instantly because they know the real thing so well. Galatians is, is Paul writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to teach us what the real gospel is so that we can identify instantly counterfeits and move away from them and stand upon the real gospel. Why is Paul so worked up about the gospel? Why does he call them foolish Galatians? Why is he so angry? What's the big deal? It's just, you know, religious talk, right? Why is he so worked up? He's worked up because the gospel, listen to me, is a matter of first importance. There, there, there's, there, there's no issue in your life, in, in this community 
in this world more vital than the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the most important message you and I will ever discuss. You say, wait, how do you know that? Well, over in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul tells us that. He defines for them the gospel. He said, this is a matter of first importance. And he defines what he means by the gospel, the good news. That's what the word gospel means. He says, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried, and early on the third day, he rose from the dead according to the scriptures. That's the gospel. There's hope for sinners like me because Jesus came and died for my sins, just like the Bible said he would. And there's hope for me because Jesus didn't stay dead. How can a dead man give eternal life? He rose from the grave just like the Bible said he would. And because of the cross and the the empty tomb, I can have salvation. And you can too. And that's good news, right? If any sinner, listen to me, Jew, Gentile, So he's writing to primarily Gentiles here, some Jews, but primarily Gentiles. Regardless of of, of background, language, ethnicity, skin color, socioeconomic status, if anyone, here's the gospel, if anyone turns from their sin and repentance and places their faith in Christ alone in his finished work, they can be saved. That's the gospel. That's good news. And maybe you're here this morning. And you wonder if God loves you. And you wonder if there's any hope for you. You're broken by sin and you're far from God. There's good news. You can be saved today. Because of what Jesus Christ did. He died in your place and my place. He took the penalty that we deserve by dying on the cross. And he defeated death itself when he walked out of his tomb. That's good news. There's hope for anyone. It is a matter of first importance because it deals with matters of this life and it deals with our eternity. You've heard the phrase, eternity is long, don't be wrong. The gospel will help you from, will keep you from getting it wrong when it comes to eternity. It's Really, really good news. Now, if the gospel is a matter of first importance, what does that mean for the church in Galatia? What does that mean for us in this room this morning? Here's what it means. Number one, know it. Know it. One of the reasons I'm so excited about the book of Galatians is because we're going to spend a lot of time digging in and learning what the gospel is really all about. Understanding it uh, better as the Holy Spirit of God works in our midst and we study these pages, we're going to trumpet justification by faith in Christ alone and, and, and all that that means. And, and we're, we're, we need to know the gospel. Again, there's so many counterfeits, so many false gospels out there. We need to know the real thing so we're not led astray. Number two, defend it. If the gospel is a matter of first importance, come in close it's worth fighting for. There's some matters that, you know, we don't, we're not going to divide over. Like, you believe that Jesus is coming back before the tribulation or in the middle of the tribulation or after the tribulation. 
there are good and godly scholars that disagree on the the timeline of the end times and eschatology and you may have strong opinions on that but again there's some mystery there and i think you'd understand i think you would agree there's some mystery there and how the whole end times deal unfolds and if you believe one thing i believe another thing hey we're still on the same team amen you may have different views on that but when it comes to the gospel you can't get that wrong because people's eternities are on the line can't get the gospel wrong we've got to be united on the truth of the good news and we've got to defend it against error that's why paul's writing this letter he said you foolish galatians who bewitched you who led you astray he's defending the true gospel against these false teachers number three the gospel is a matter of first importance you and i need to rejoice in it it ought to affect our lives and I, I i've been waiting all week to tell you this i want I, I want to give you this statement i think it's so important for the church today the gospel listen to me the gospel is not just a gate that gets you into the kingdom the gospel is the air that the christian breathes daily it's not just this message you hear so you can get saved and not go to hell the gospel has daily implications for your life. And until you understand that, you won't rejoice in it. But when you understand how daily you need the truths of the gospel to warm your heart and, and help your thinking, you won't rejoice in it. It won't seem like that big of a deal to you. So what does that look like to breathe the air of the gospel daily? Well, when Satan tries to bring up your past, the gospel says, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The devil ever try to bring up your past? Anybody in here that ever happened to you? The gospel says, today, if you are in Christ, there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. When we are tempted to think that our performance gives us a better standing with God. The gospel says we are robed in the perfect righteousness of Christ. When we were saved, we were given his perfection as a gift. We don't have to earn our standing with God. We don't have to, to, to try to get God to like us more. He sees us as being robed in the perfection of his son. How's that for a good standing? That's your standing with God. Imputed righteousness. A righteousness that is not your own. It's been given to you as a gift. Now certainly we serve and we walk with Him, but it's not to get Him to like us more. It's because we have favor with God through Jesus Christ and we want to know Him more. That's the gospel. When we begin to think too highly of ourselves or our religious pedigree, the gospel says that we are all sinners saved by grace. There is no room in the body of Christ for anyone looking down on anyone else. If there's anything good in your life, it's grace. 
grace that God has showered upon you through His Son, Jesus Christ. You didn't earn it. You didn't deserve it. God has granted it to you as a gift. And over 1 Corinthians 4, I love this verse. He says, why do you boast about something that you received as a gift? If you received it as a gift, why boast about that? Right? So the next time you feel kind of prideful about how good you're doing, or maybe you compare your life to someone else that's not doing so well, you want to look down on them, just remember you're a sinner saved by grace. If you could have been saved any other way, then why did Jesus have to die? If you were good enough to make it to heaven yourself, why did Jesus shed his precious blood at Calvary? We'll see that argument in Galatians as well. When we begin to get discouraged by our pursuit of holiness, as we see how wicked our hearts really are, the gospel says you are fully forgiven do not despair. I remember I read the book, Pursuit of Holiness, by Jerry Bridges, and he makes the statement in the book. He said, listen, when you start to pursue holiness, you're going to see just how much of a mess you are. When, when the light of God's holiness shines in your heart in an ever-increasing way, you're going to see that there's some stuff there that needs to be dealt with, and it's not very pretty, and in those moments you need to remember the gospel. Instead of sinking into despair, you say, I've been forgiven. Now, God, change me. Bring my practice into conformity with my position. But I'm not condemned by the stuff there. You've forgiven me of that. The gospel declares that over your life. When we find ourselves, listen, prayerless. The gospel says that Christ shed his own blood so we can have access to a holy God. And when we remember that, we are motivated to pray. How was your prayer life last week? Do you remember that Jesus paid it all so you could have an audience with a holy God? So you could even dare to come into his presence and ask him to meet needs in your life? The gospel reminds us of what Christ did so we could draw near to God and pray. Why are we so prayerless? The gospel will motivate us to pray. When we are plagued by certain sin, the gospel says your old self has been crucified with Christ. You are no longer a slave to sin. You are free. So now, as a believer in Christ, you have the capacity. Oh, listen. You have the capacity to say no to sin and yes to Jesus. When you embrace Christ as your Lord and Savior, the Bible says there was a transaction that took place there that your old self died. Just like Jesus died on the cross, your old self died. Now you're free to say no to that old sin. So start saying no in the power of the Spirit. The gospel reminds us of that. When we find that our worship is stale and dry, the gospel says that the God who saves is the God who deserves glory. 
over to Ephesians 1, there's a very detailed explanation of the truths of the gospel. And it says three times that first chapter, to the praise of the glory of his grace. Why did God save? Why did God redeem? Why did God justify? Why did God adopt? Why did God take time to intersect the life of a sinner like me? To the praise of the glory of his grace. Ultimately, when, it, when it's all said and done, God will get glory. And that glory will be built upon the foundation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When we rehearse the gospel, when we know the gospel, we defend the gospel, it ought to point our hearts to, to the Lord and His glory, and it ought to change our worship. Listen, if your worship is stale and dry, I submit to you, you don't understand the gospel. The gospel is a motivator to give God glory. And so we need to rejoice in it. It's not just a gate into the kingdom, even though it does save and saves us from hell. The gospel is the air that you and I breathe every single day. But there's a final thing here. If the gospel is a matter of first importance, we ought to know it and defend it and rejoice in it. We ought to share it. You think? Think we ought to share this message? It has this kind of impact and, and if it really is dynamite, we ought to share it. This gospel, listen to me, when shared in the power of the Spirit by changed people that care, it'll turn a community upside down. It'll change a nation. Just read the history of our, our nation. 1700s, 1800s, great awakenings fueled by the gospel. It could happen again. But we got to share it, right? But let me make it more personal. Maybe you're in here this morning and you're wondering if there's any hope for a lost loved one in your life. Maybe it's a prodigal family member, close friend, and you've prayed and, and, you, and you really feel like you need to throw in the towel. Sure, nothing is impossible with God, but this one's going to be a little bit beyond His reach. Listen to me. When you feel that way, the Bible says that the gospel is the power of God. Unto salvation. How does God release his life-changing power into someone's life? Through the gospel. So we need to share it. Because it really is good news. You've heard me say this before. If you and I were medical researchers and we discovered the cure to cancer, I submit to you we would be morally obligated to let the public know. Wouldn't you agree with that? Listen to me. Sin is a far worse disease than cancer. It brings brokenness and destruction in this life, 
And it separates people from God for all of eternity. And the only hope is that we are forgiven our sin through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. We have the good news. We are morally obligated to share it. So I pray that as we, as we handle this gospel dynamite for about a year, we'll be in Galatians for about a year, I pray that we would be moved to share it. Here's the point, and we'll be through. In writing the letter to the churches in Galatia, Paul models passion and concern for faithfulness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. How about you? Do you have passion and concern for the gospel of Jesus Christ?